1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
2: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros,
1: and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Priya Misra, managing director, global head of race strategy at TD Securities, joins us, and I know she doesn't want to talk about powertrains on a Ford F-150 truck. We want to talk to you, Priya, about what your Federal Reserve is going to do here. I mean, we had a pretty strong, solid uh, payroll number on Friday, but boy, there's a lot of inflation out there. How do you think your Federal Reserve is going to react in the weeks and months going forward?
3: I mean, I guess one analogy to your power uh, truck uh, talk before is uh, I think the Fed has to be aggressive. I mean, you know, policy is very accommodative given the economic uh, outlook right now. And so I think uh, they are signaling that they want to get to neutral fast. I think the big debate in the market is, do they have to go above neutral? How much above neutral? Can they engineer a soft landing? Or will they force the economy into a recession to try and get inflation credibility? But the one clear message we're getting is they want to normalize at least to whatever neutral is. And uh, you know, uh, neutral for the funds rate, I would say, is in the two and a half percent funds rate. Uh, so we are expecting the the Fed to hike fifty basis points in May, June, then continue with uh, with twenty five until they get to that neutral point. We also but, expect them to start QT uh, very soon in in, in May. You know, our, part of normalization.
2: Priya, our question of the day on the M Live um, blog was, where is R star? What is it? What is the neutral rate right now? And I guess first it depends if you're talking about real or uh nominal but um how do you get to that number
3: right and there's a lot of research done on this they tend to come to the R star, so the the real equilibrium uh, rate being somewhere between 0 and 50 basis points. But there's a very wide range of of estimates around this this median estimate. You know, there are those that argue it's negative. I'm going to throw another point in here, that when the Fed is letting the balance sheet run off, I think R star, even the real number, is, is probably lower than it would be if the Fed was not letting the balance sheet run off. So when we run these historical metrics, You know, the balance sheets only run off once before. And I would argue that the Fed did overdo it last time when they took the funds rate to two and a half. So I would say closer to zero is what we would call neutral. But, you know, the Fed is humble and we're all humble uh, as we're figuring out what neutral is. I think that's why the Fed might want to maybe speed it up in the near term. That's why we've got the two back-to-back 50s and then slowly get to that neutral because then the, the economy should show signs that we're nearing our star even if we don't have a great sense of what it is, you know, beforehand, we should see the consumer start to slow down and corporates start to slow down, and that'll be a sign that we're getting close to neutral. The Fed should start to get, uh, you know, slow down, then become more cautious.
2: There was a great tweet, I think it was over the weekend, by um, Roberto Perli, uh, who worked at Piper works at Piper Sandler. Um, he shows a chart. His His estimated nominal neutral rate is charted along with the Fed's funds rate uh, since 1961. And every time um, it seems the Fed funds rate touches or gets beyond the nominal neutral rate, it drives us into a recession. Do you expect a recession?
3: So we don't expect a recession because we don't expect the Fed to go much above neutral. So, it, you know, the the two we have, you should be consistent. For those who argue that the Fed's going to go to 3.5 or above 3% on the funds rate, and the market's now pricing in 3.1 as the end point of the hiking cycle, I think then it's very reasonable that the economy slows down significantly and the Fed may have to cut right after that. And that's why you look at the yield curve or just, just uh, you know, forwards, are pricing in almost three rate cuts, um, you know, after terminal rate is reached. Because we have the Fed slowing down as they approach neutral and not going much above neutral, we're sort of expecting that the Fed will engineer this soft landing and they don't. We don't have a recession, they don't need to cut. But there are these two possibilities. There is a, a, a case where inflation forces them to go above neutral, and then I think the economy slows down, perhaps goes into recession. I'm somewhat sympathetic to the idea that if the unemployment rate rises a little bit, it's hard to prevent that from just rising a little bit, and that's when you do, you know, the, the psalm rule kicks in and you actually go into a recession. So that's a reasonable, uh, uh, you know, possible outcome right now. All
1: right, Priya, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your thoughts and perspective here as our Federal Reserve uh, continues on its rate hike uh, plan here. Priya Misra, Managing Director and Global Head of Rate Strategy at TD Security. You know, Matt, since the beginning of this pandemic thing, we've been leaning on this dude named Sam Fazelli. And who is this guy, Sam Fazelli? He's been on Bloomberg News. He writes stuff. He's on TV. He's on radio. Why? Sam Fazelli. Well, here's his day job. He's the head of the European research, all of research for Bloomberg Intelligence in Europe. So he's got like 50, 75 people reporting to him. So he's in theory, a manager, but that's debatable. But his big call (laughs) to fame is he's a... uh, Paul likes to dump on managers. Yeah, I do. Just FYI, it's a little inside baseball. But his claim to fame is he's really, really made his chops. He's one of the top pharmaceutical uh, medical analysts in the city of London. And occasionally he comes to New York to share his expertise And he's a licensed wine sommelier. Yeah, he's crazy. He does a wine thing. He's a wino, too. So we've got that going for him. But he's actually in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio today. Sam, thanks so much for joining us. For me, Pandemics in the rearview mirror. Am I a little bit early? He's been on saying that. that for months. I've by been the saying way. that for months.
6: Yeah, I think that was uh, Paul's uh, wish every morning or every, every evening before going to bed. He knelt <laughs> by his bed and did this. But first of all, can I just say how nice it is to be here, yes, together with you in the flesh. Yep. So that already. Yep.
2: And there are a lot of people in the office
6: today. Right, and that gives. And it's a Monday, right? Supposedly yeah, yeah. Mondays and Fridays are, are sh- should be light, but that, to a degree, plays to your comment. Uh, In that I felt comfortable enough to get on a plane to come here. I looked at case counts here. Okay, they may be going up a little bit, but nothing like what we had before. I thought, this is my opportunity. Hopefully, we'll never go back to what it was before. I don't think the virus has quite finished with us. Okay. But still, um, we're in a period where we are able to manage all this pressure with the vaccines that we've all had and the drugs that we've got.
2: We certainly see, well, it feels like the mutations are less deadly um, since uh delta right um is that the case for viruses do they mutate in uh less and less deadly forms or is it possible that what some mutation comes along that is again um severe in terms of the disease it causes
6: yeah matt i think we lucked out there a little bit we got it we got a variant that was much more transmissible and through that it also changed the way that infected us so we ended up getting upper respiratory tract so-called infections rather than deep lung which is where the trouble starts so But I have to say, in an unvaccinated person, this is not an easy infection, right? We're just lucky that we all have, most of us have been vaccinated or prior infected. So there is no rhyme or reason. The virus, once it's infected you and infected the next person, it doesn't care what happens to you.
2: I mean, not that it's- But we are kind of holding to the same schedule as the Spanish flu. I know that's a misnomer now. And my wife who's from Spain hates it when she's like, it's the Kansas flu. no, We called it the Spanish flu in 1918. Uh, That's hung around for like two years, right? It was deadly at first and then got less and less deadly. And now it's the flu that we all, you know, get,
6: but it's immunity. That's, that's the difference over those two or three years, you build up immunity either through an infection which is not the ideal way, or through the vaccines that they gave us, which was great. So that's what the difference is. And I think we we can't separate the two from each other. Is it possible that another variant turns up that's back to the high virulence of the previous Delta variant and more transmissible? Yes. I mean, it's all random. As far as the virus is concerned, once you're infected and it's had the opportunity to jump to the next victim, whatever... It doesn't care what happens to you. You can go and die, whatever. It makes no difference, right? That's the critical part here. That can happen by accident. Hopefully it won't. Hopefully our immune system gets us controlled. Delta. I mean yep. if you look at everyone says Omicron's less virulent or less problematic. Look at Delta. The death rate per case for Delta was already pretty low. So it's the vaccines.
2: So China. China. by the way, are we back are we back to are we back down to a level that is more like the traditional flu
6: in terms of case fatality yeah. rate n- not really because it all depends on which country you look at and what age group you look at I there are it. age groups okay. where the number of deaths are still high and perhaps would benefit from a fourth shot which i'm sure is the next thing you're gonna
1: ask exactly i mean uh they s- president biden came out recently and said those over 50 in this country i think i might be I have to check my license i might be above 50 can get a fourth booster get a fourth shot another booster do i need that I'm, I'm i'm getting in line by the way when they start offering it i'll be the yeah. first in line
2: you can go get it now dude no right. one's checking your id at cvs okay you just walk in and get a shot all, right. Right. all Oh, right i'll
6: do that yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no so so the thing is do you want to play whack-a-mole with this forever um, if we're talking about preventing severe disease you not getting bad disease uh, below the age of 70 i don't see the data There seems to be no difference if you had a fourth or a third shot based on current data. Remember, that's been an important thing for us to remember every time we talk about this. The data evolves because it's, you know, we're literally building the ship as we're trying to sail it. Um, So below the age of 70, I haven't seen data that convinces me a fourth shot makes a difference to severe disease. If you want to have three or four months of cover not to catch it, you probably could do with that, and you get this boost in antibodies that will contract again. Um, So that whack-a-mole game, or do you want to prevent severe disease? Okay.
1: How about our friends in China? I I don't see that ending well there. I mean, they've had such a zero-tolerance policy, which arguably worked for them in terms of the disease, maybe not so much for their economy and the global economy, but certainly for them and the disease. But Omicron seems like it doesn't really care about that.
6: What what changed for them was Omicron. Okay. They did everything right. Yep. They had a great, I mean, they had a fantastic track record in terms of number of people who died compared to us sure. here yep. or in the UK. But what changed was Omicron?
2: I mean, they did everything right in terms of keeping people alive, you mean, right? Right, right. It oh, no. probably sucked
6: to M- live there. Mental health is a totally yeah. different conversation for us to have. The impact on healthcare in other areas. But Now, Omicron is not playing by the by the right um, by the right rules. But fortunately,
2: not. I was going to say not as deadly. But you you pointed out for for vaccinated people. How many people there are vaccinated?
6: So the numbers I'm hearing is that only thirty or forty percent of people that are in the risk group of more aged. Uh, eight, uh, higher, uh, uh, older people are only ever... Ha- and that's, and ever that's, what the vaccine. so and that's with the Sinopharm or right. whatever, yeah. yeah. Right, so what they need, which is what we argued in a piece we wrote with the Economist team, uh, is to get an mRNA shot into those arms or something equivalent in terms of... F- is that, F- that going to F- happen, perfect. you think? Well, ju- I've just seen news over the weekend that they're starting <clears throat> Excuse me, two trials with different mRNA vaccines homegrown. But... Why do that rather than going somewhere where there's an enormous body of data that tells you what, exactly what to expect if you gave them a BioNTech And wouldn't shot.
1: Pfizer love to go in there and put jabs in a couple but billion people?
6: They, why not? Yeah. But, but also, BioNTechs already got a partner in China. Okay. They already filed the data in China, to my estimation, at least six months ago.
2: Plus, with they corporate can... espionage, they probably have all the data anyway, right? But yeah,
6: right. <laughs> no, I mean, but at the end of the day,
1: go with the vaccine that you know does what it yep. does. I tell you, we complain about these big pharma companies gouging us on drugs, but boy, they came through here in this pandemic. I mean, they really did, Yeah. in my opinion. I mean, they one year... These these guys came out with this stuff and they got it into people's arms and hopefully we can do it in some of these uh, developing countries as well. Sam Fazelli, thanks so much for joining us live. Yes, live in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Comes to us live from London, usually on the phone, but we got him here in New York. I guess I got to buy him dinner tonight. He's head of European Research for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, big time pharma analyst over there in the city of London. He's a real hotshot, but we got him in our studios. I
7: think
1: Elon Musk has some restrictions on actually being on Twitter, tweeting, but doesn't stop him from buying Twitter. I have to admit, it doesn't I stop him from tweeting either. Yeah, uh, he, he, he didn't care about he those restrictions. He doesn't care about those silly oh. SEC. Uh, but I'll tell you, I did not see this news this morning, him taking a stake in Twitter. Maybe somebody smarter than us did see this. Hey, Dan, Dan Ives, Managing Director Senior Equity Analyst at Wedbush Securities and a proud Penn Stater uh, joins us. Dan, oh, yeah, before we get to that, actually, yes. Dan, I was thinking about you this weekend.
2: Uh-oh. I uh, I went back to my mom's garage in Granville, Ohio to pick up a, an old a classic Ducati Monster S4R S. Sure. And I drove it back here to New York as Why? I was I don't I thought it would be fun and yeah. it actually wasn't. But it was one thing that was cool was I did stop in State College uh, in, go. in Happy Valley and I thought about Dan Dan Ives.
1: Uh, Dan, what do you make of this? What's Elon doing here?
7: Look, I think this is really the start of what's going to be a shake up at Twitter. I mean, Musk doesn't just do a passive 9% stake for fun. So I think this is ultimately the start of a broader role at Twitter. And, you know, this is really ultimately Musk expanding the ecosystem. That's why the streets reading this as basically this is the start of something much bigger that Musk is leading.
2: But so we were taking passive as uh, meaning he won't take a board seat or, you know, tell um, the C-suite what to do. But does passive mean something else?
7: Yeah, I mean, look, Paul, there's a better chance of me playing Augusta this weekend than <laughs> must keeping, keeping just a passive stake. I mean, this is going to go active above the 10%. It's a matter of their conversations with the board and do they ultimately play ball. But I think that's really the view is that, especially Twitter, which has been the right lane, I mean, where others are passing in the left lane, you know, social media from a monetization perspective, it's been disappointing. And, of course, Musk is is you know, is not no secret in terms of his criticism of Twitter. So it's like, look, if if the bank has your house, then you can just buy the bank. And I think he's going down that path. We got to see which direction it goes. But obviously for Twitter, it's bullish because clearly the, the, he's going to shake things up.
1: Dan, what do you think he could do here or should do here?
7: What I think he could do is at least board seats, get more active, a new suite of directors, and then ultimately look to either change some of the policies you know, by being on the board, and then eventually, depending on how it all shakes out, I mean, this could ultimately lead to a sale. You know, obviously, private equity could get involved. And I think that's, that's the view here is that this soap opera, this is just the start of what's going to happen with Musk and Twitter. And Because, as we all know, I mean, Musk is not someone that just puts one toe in the, the water, right? And, and, and I think he's going to be a lot more aggressive, you know, I think in the coming months and year, especially as it comes to Twitter.
2: What does he want to change at Twitter? What has he been unhappy about?
7: Well, clearly, I mean, there's a lot of criticism that that he's talked about in terms of freedom of speech and others on Twitter. I think it's led to, you know, his view that he was really going to try to create his own social media platform, which as we all know, that's extremely difficult. And obviously, you know, he looked at and and his advisors looked at the situation, but Dorsey going to the background, you know, with a lot of sort of passive stakes in Twitter – I think there was an opportunity, and he recognized it was now or never, to, to really go after Twitter. And I think this is the start, right, in terms of a passive ownership stake, which likely goes to active. And now it's a matter of what the next step is. Dan,
1: you followed Elon Musk and Ted and Tesla in and his career for a long time.
7: What, what do you think? Is
1: this a, from a portfolio perspective, his personal por- portfolio of assets – you know, some people are suggesting this is the beginning of him trying to diversify a little bit. Do you expect him to be spreading more of his wealth out into other companies, other industries? How do you think about that?
7: Yeah, and remember, he's not an activist like in the sense of like an icon or others. Right. He doesn't view it like that, just getting into his mind, right? I mean, the way Musk views this is that just like he did on EVs, just like he did with space, he's like he looks at social media and be like, something's wrong here from his viewpoint. This needs to be changed, and I'm going to change it, and I'm the richest person in the world, and I'm going to start that. And I think that's, that's what he's really going down with Twitter. Now the conversation is like, what's the next step? Can you change monetization of the platform, algorithms, advertising, right? These are all things from an investor perspective. It's not just the whole you know, quote, unquote freedom of speech issue. So I think that's really going to be the focus going forward, what the next steps are. But you know, this is one where you know, I think for Twitter, from an investor perspective, they obviously welcome this because there's very few that could rock the boat like this, and Musk is obviously one.
1: Interesting yeah. stuff. Yeah. I, I don't know what I just don't know what this guy's going to do with this thing. It's it's, it's really amazing, and uh, uh, I boy, I didn't see this coming at all. But anyway, exciting though, right? Good stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. great for Monday. Hey, Dan, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your perspective. Dan Ives, he's a managing director. He's a senior equity analyst. covers all this tech stuff, all the internet. I think Elon Musk has some restrictions on actually being on Twitter, tweeting. But it doesn't stop him from buying Twitter. I have to admit, it I It doesn't stop him from tweeting either. Yeah, uh, it he, he, he didn't care about He doesn't care about those silly no. SEC. Uh, but I'll tell you, I did not see this news this morning, him taking a stake in Twitter. Maybe somebody smarter than us did see this. Hey, Dan, Dan Ives, Managing Director, Senior Equity Analyst at Wedbush Securities and a proud Penn Stater uh, joins us. Dan, but yeah, before we get to that, actually, yes. Dan, I was thinking about
2: you this weekend. Uh-oh. I uh, I went back to my mom's garage in Granville, Ohio to pick up a, an old a classic Ducati Monster S4R S. Sure. And I drove it back here to New York as Why? I was I don't I thought it would be fun and it yeah. actually wasn't. But it was one thing that was cool was I did stop in State College uh, there in, you go. in Happy Valley and I thought about Dan Dan Ives.
1: Uh, Dan, what do you make of this? What's Elon doing here?
7: Look, I think this is really the start of what's going to be a shake up at Twitter. I mean, Musk doesn't just do a passive 9% stake for fun. So I think this is ultimately the start of a broader role at Twitter. And, you know, this is really ultimately Musk expanding the ecosystem. That's why the street's reading this as basically this is the start of something much bigger that Musk is leading.
2: But so we were taking passive as uh, meaning he won't take a board seat or, you know, tell um, the C-suite what to do but does passive mean something else?
7: Yeah I mean look Paul there's a better chance of me playing Augusta this weekend <laughs> than must keeping, keeping just a passive stake. I mean this is going to go active above the 10% it's a matter of their conversations with the board and do they ultimately play ball but I think that's really the view is that especially Twitter which has been the right lane I mean, where others are passing in the left lane, you know, social media from a monetization perspective, it's been disappointing. And, of course, Musk is is you know, is not no secret in terms of his criticism of Twitter. So it's like, look, if if the bank has your house, then you can just buy the bank. And I think he's going down that path. We got to see which direction it goes. But obviously for Twitter, it's bullish because clearly the, the, he's going to shake things up.
1: Dan, what do you think he could do here or should do here?
7: What I think he could do is at least board seats, get more active, a new suite of directors, and then ultimately look to either change some of the policies you know, by being on the board, and then eventually, depending on how it all shakes out, I mean, th- this could ultimately lead to a sale you know, obviously, private equity could get involved. And I think that's, that's the view here is that this soap opera, this is just the start of what's going to happen with Musk and Twitter. And Because, as we all know, I mean, Musk is not someone that just puts one toe in the, the water, right? And, and, and I think he's going to be a lot more aggressive, you know, I think in the coming months and year, especially as it comes to Twitter.
2: What does he want to change at Twitter? What has he been unhappy about?
7: Well, clearly, I mean, there's a lot of criticism that that he's talked about in terms of freedom of speech and others on Twitter. I think it's led to, you know, his view that he was really going to try to create his own social media platform, which as we all know, that's extremely difficult. And obviously, you know, he looked at and and his advisors looked at the situation, but Dorsey going to the background, you know, with a lot of sort of passive stakes in Twitter – I think there was an opportunity, and he recognized it was now or never, to to really go after Twitter. And I think this is the start, right, in terms of a passive ownership stake, which likely goes to active. And now it's a matter of what the next step is.
1: Dan, you followed Elon Musk and and Ted Tesla in his career for a long time. What what do you think? Is this from a portfolio perspective, his personal portfolio of assets – you know, some people are suggesting this is the beginning of him trying to diversify a little bit. Do you expect him to be spreading more of his wealth out into other companies, other industries? How do you think about that?
7: Yeah, and remember, he's not an activist like in the sense of like an icon or others. Right. He doesn't view it like that, just getting into his mind, right? I mean, the way Musk views this is that just like he did on EVs, just like he did with space, he's like he looks at social media and be like, something's wrong here. From his viewpoint. This needs to be changed, and I'm going to change it, and I'm the richest person in the world, and I'm going to start that. And I think that's, that's what he's really going down with Twitter. Now the conversation is like, what's the next step? Can you change monetization of the platform, algorithms, advertising, right? These are all things from an investor perspective. It's not just the whole you know, quote, unquote freedom of speech issue. So I think that's really going to be the focus going forward, what the next steps are. But, you know, this is one where you know, I think for Twitter, from an investor perspective, they obviously welcome this because there's very few that could rock the boat like this. And Musk is obviously one.
1: Interesting yeah. stuff. Yeah. I, I don't know what I just don't know what this guy's going to do with this thing. It's 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 really amazing. And uh, uh, I boy, I didn't see this coming at all. But anyway, exciting, though, right? Good stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. great for Monday. Hey, Dan, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your perspective, Dan Ives. He's a managing director. He's a senior equity analyst. He covers all this tech stuff, all the internet, uh, and he's been, you know, really bullish on Tesla and really right on t- Tesla. And uh, now we've got Elon Musk um, again taking a nine point two percent stake in a Twitter. Some exciting news for a Monday morning. Thanks for
2: listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter
1: at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.
0: What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher-level analysis,